0: stand with us. Let's declare the praises of our God in being in this place this morning, for He is worthy of it. Sing together. Sing
1: these words. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. Every chain will break. His broken hearts declare For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. For the sin of the world, His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Open up the gates. Open up the gates. Make a way before the king. It's here to set the captives free Who can stop the Lord Almighty Our God is alive
0: Paul from the mid-50s AD as we remind ourselves who we are in Jesus, what he's accomplished for us and on our behalf. Hear these words. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you received does not make you slaves since you live in fear again. Rather, hear this: the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are His children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory, we remind ourselves, we've been adopted by the Most High God, we're co-heirs with Christ, to them together we sing.
2: I that the highest king would welcome me and I was lost but he brought me in oh his love for me oh his love for me oh, the sun sets free oh His freedom indeed I'm a child I am. Free at last, He has ransomed me. Oh, His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for. Singing church. cha
3: Is Brian Pope. I'm the global outreach director here at Fellowship, and I wanted to let y'all know about one of my favorite outreach ministries that we partner with here. It's called Furniture Friends, and what Furniture Friends does is they loan out furniture for free to international students who have moved here to study at the University of Arkansas. And right now today, they have uh, pieces of furniture in over 350 uh, apartments from 60 plus nations. Uh, representing 60-plus nations, and so we are taking, uh, we want to have a donation day, and so we just want to ask you to QR code that. Um, It's Saturday, July 30th at 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. If you have any unbroken used furniture that you just uh, would love to donate, uh, it is used as a ministry uh, to help introduce people to Christ by serving a very practical need Also, if you're a little more adventurous, uh, on August 13th, at the same location, at 9 a.m., we're looking for people to help deliver that furniture to apartments. It's a great thing to do with your family. It's a great thing for community groups to do. If you have a pickup truck, we are in desperate need, and I guarantee you one thing, you'll be shocked by some of the countries that you uh, technically will be delivering to uh, with this furniture, so... Please get involved. QR code this. Um, We just want to fill the warehouse full of furniture. It just means more lives touched in a practical way. Hey, this morning, we have a very special guest with us. You've probably heard us talk about our No Sue Translation Project. It is an African language of about 30 million people uh, who don't have a Bible in their language. And the guy who is going to get that project going and started is here with us today. Brian, come on up. Brian, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on and what you'll be doing? Absolutely. Good morning, church.
4: What a joy to be with you guys this morning. Uh, My name is Brian. My wife, Libby, and our three daughters have been working in this troubled part of North Africa for the past 13 years. We've been making disciples and uh, planting churches and working to translate the Bible in two minority languages. And while we've seen, we've been close enough to hear bombs fall 15 miles away from our house, We've been in the middle of firefights, and we've had to evacuate four times as a family. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we've seen God do some incredible things. We've seen over a thousand, in fact, close to I think it's around fourteen hundred believers, uh, people, Muslims, come to know Jesus, come to follow Christ. A dozen churches planted in this area. We've been, we've seen the life transformation of people forgiving their neighbor, reading in Matthew to turn the other cheek, and when they're facing, uh, you know, one of these. Uh, One of the women who's leading one of these churches was beaten very badly, an old family feud, and her brothers were ready to go and, and destroy this family that hurt her. And she said, I've been reading in the gospel where Jesus says, turn the other cheek, and she decided to forgive. We see cycles of violence in a very difficult place being broken and lives being changed, and we've seen people volunteering their time and energy from the church to teach others to read, to teach adult education, um, to be a blessing. The church is being a blessing to their community. And I'll tell you, the thing I love most about Bible translation as a strategy for making disciples is the way the Bible is born from within a community. Community checking is my favorite part where we go out and we read new portions of scripture that have never existed in this language, that people have never heard. And we get Muslims and Christians and old and young together and read. And one day, uh, Umda Antar, the the highest chief from this people group, was there in the community checking session. We were reading parables of Jesus. And he sat quietly, and in the end, he said, I've never heard these stories. And I thought, oh no, here we go. (laughs) And he said, these are good stories. Our people need to hear these stories. You keep sharing these stories with our people and people. You listen to these stories and you read these stories. These are good for our people. The highest level Muslim leader in their community. I've learned that Muslims, most Muslims, are not resistant to Jesus. They've not rejected Jesus, they've just never heard. They don't know the good news. And that's something that together we can do something about. So we're headed next week, Lord willing, to the heart of this country. Our organization, Partner Bible Translators, have two teams working with minority peoples in rebel-controlled places. When you think think Star Wars, when you think about rebels in this place, they're kind of the good guys in the oversimplified narrative. And our family are headed into the center of the empire, so to speak, Um, next week, Lord willing. Because there's 39 million people who speak a language that has no scripture. Uh, These people have had a revolution about three years ago. And before that time, all of the Christian workers were kicked out of this area. But three years ago, there was a revolution. And there's a new level of openness. So we're going. We want to get this project started. A few stories, the only scraps of scripture that exist in this language were put up on Facebook a few years ago. And there were millions of views, millions of listens. And so we believe the time is now, that there's a level of openness, there's a readiness. People are fed up with political Islam. People are fed up with Arab nationalism, and they're exploring what else could there be. And so it's the time for this troubled nation. So pray with us. There's nothing about this that's going to be easy. We're still waiting for our visas to be approved. I ask for prayers for that. We're trying to build the team of stakeholders within the country as well as A couple of expats to champion the cause on the social media side, on the disciple-making side, and on the technical translation side. And we're praying for peace and stability in this nation. Thank you for partnering with us in this effort that a lot of people can know the news they've never learned before. May his kingdom come in North Africa, even as it is
3: in heaven. Hmm. Does that get you fired up? Oh my goodness. I just want to tell you, we, we know a lot of y'all have already uh, began to give, and uh, thank you. we just want to pray that we would continue uh, to bless this. This is about a 10 to 15-year project that we are committing to, uh, to see this happen, and so it's not an overnight, easy thing. So with that in mind, let's pray. And like you said, next week, you'll be moving your family Sunday. there with three three girls. Yeah. Uh, so let's pray. Yeah. Dear God, I thank you so much for Brian. I thank you God, just seeing people who just have such a passion for you and have a heart to go to the difficult places. God, that there could be an estimated 30 to 40 million people that have no access to scripture to be able to read in their language. And God, we wanna see, as a church, we wanna make a change in that place. So God, may we do, we do our part uh, to see that change happen. God, give Brian and his family protection. We pray specifically for those visas to be approved, that they will gain access there. We pray for protection. We pray that you direct them to the uh, right place to live. Uh, Julie, we pray for all the partners that he's going to be raising up to see this accomplished. In your name we pray. Amen. If you would mind, would you please stand
0: with us? And here's what I'd like to do. There's a there's an amazing picture in the book of Revelation of Surrounding the throne, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That repetition of those four happens over and over again in the book of Revelation. Every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And I was going to ask you and ask me right now to to sing these words that we're about to sing, but to sing these words over this part of that continent, over this language, over this translation project, and over over this people. So, would you join me together and we're just going to sing these words on behalf of them.
1: And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing, Great are you, Lord. And all Our hearts will cry; these bones will sing. Great are You, Lord. Sing it out, all the earth!
2: All the earth will shout Your praise. Our hearts will cry; these bones will sing.
1: Great.
0: sent out his disciples into all the earth, all through the nations, that Ozark Mountain Plateau was the opposite side of the world. We are the nations, and yet you've rescued us, and you've intersected your story, the story of Jesus, you've intersected that with our lives and my life. So we sing praises to you, our King, our Rescuer, our Saviour. God, we pray that you would do the same to the ends of the earth. You're the only king who's worthy of it. All authority in heaven and earth is yours. So we come before you this morning to hear from your word, to follow you, to know you better, and we ask it in your name, Jesus, our king. Amen. God bless you.
5: Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Hey, y'all. My name is Andy Petrie, and I have the the great privilege of being able to lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry that meets here every single Friday night right here in this room at seven o'clock, a place for us to uh, find healing and hope from whatever hurt, hang up, or habit we might be dealing with. I'm so grateful that we have a church that is so keen on prioritizing the health of our people, Uh, and I'm so grateful to be here this morning as we look at a really interesting passage today. But before we get to that, I got a question for you. Have you ever thought that you were in total control of something, that you uh, had stuff figured out, and you were completely confident that you were right about it? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I decided that it was time for us to graduate our toddler up into a toddler car seat, a booster seat, uh, uh, so that we could have better ideas of like what she's doing in the back seat during long car rides. And we did this after we were on our way back home from St. Louis visiting my family and Harper found her diaper bag and then found her formula and then proceeded to do this all over the back seat there. Uh, (laughs) And so when we got home, we bought some new car seats and my wife said, hey, go ahead and put, can you switch those out? And I said, sure, I got it. No problem. Car seats are simple. They're really easy. You see, I never understood why people had trouble with car seats. It's literally just two clips, you tighten it up, you're good to go. But what nobody told me is that there's this magical third tether that comes along whenever you get this toddler seat. And so I spent about an hour and a half in a 95 degree garage trying to play Where's Waldo with this mythical third tether point. I was reading through owner's manuals, I was watching YouTube videos, I was clearing out the back of the cars and eventually I got to a point where I was throwing stuff across the garage. And I thought two things in that moment. One, I really hope the neighbors didn't just hear me. (laughs) And two, I don't think I have these car seats near as figured out as I think I do. And you know, there's been a lot of times in my life where I've tried to convince myself that I've got something figured out and then I come to quickly realize that I don't. And I think one for me that stands out most of all is right after I graduated college and the season I had in life there. You see, I was convinced that I had life and happiness figured out. I just go to college, I I get good grades, I graduate, I get a good job, I start making money, make a family. And I quickly found out that life wasn't that simple. And a few months after graduating college, I, I found myself in a broken mess on my bedroom floor thinking about my life. Two college degrees, A minimum wage job, student loans, maxed out credit card, a budding alcohol and pornography addiction, multiple broken relationships, and a deep depression that had me feeling like I was the biggest failure and mistake that I knew. And It was in this season that God started showing me that for all of my life, I had built it on so many lies and false beliefs that I had the strength to control all of the people, the places, and the outcomes all around me, that I had it all figured out. And I desperately needed to learn how to build my life on the truth of who God is, not my understanding of this world. And while most folks don't have the same story I do, what I've come to see through walking with a lot of different hurting people in a lot of different seasons, we all have the tendency to fall for these sorts of lies. And eventually, it it all comes crashing down. You see, when we fool ourselves and we build our life on these lies, When we live out of a place that we think that our own understanding and false sense of control is everything, it causes damage and pain. And if we stay committed to living in that place of false understanding, it can even cause us to miss the God who is over all of it. And this morning, we're going to look at a story in John where some very similar stuff is happening. In fact, it seems like every one of our main characters in this story has bought into their own lives and can't really even begin to see the truth of the reality that's unfolding right in front of them. It's a story that forces us to confront the truth of who Jesus is and how we're going to respond to him. And we're going to look at that today through the lens of the, the three different main characters as we look at the avoidance of this guy named Pontius Pilate, the rejection of these chief priests, and then the truth of who Jesus is. And so if you want to open up your Bibles this morning or open up the app on your device, we're going to be in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. And to set the backdrop of of this scene, just a few hours before this, Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He was then arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish, Jewish people. And after this mock trial, they were convinced, all right, yep, we need to execute this Jesus guy. Now the Jewish leaders were forbidden to actually execute someone because capital punishment was something that was solely reserved for the Roman ruling body and so they take Jesus to this man named Pontius Pilate who's the Roman governor over Judea. And Pilate's a smart politician. He knows how to deal with the Jewish people, but Jesus presents a really interesting problem for him. And what we're going to see is a wrestling match take place within the heart of Pilate as as he knows what to be true, but then he battles with the pragmatism of the moment. Jesus is gonna invite Pilate to engage with him on a deeper level, and Pilate is gonna go back and forth from defending Jesus's innocence, and yet, ultimately, he's gonna choose to discard Jesus for the most self-preserving political choice in the moment. The scene starts with the Jewish leaders standing outside of Pilate's home, uh, demanding that Jesus be dealt with, and it's interesting to note that this isn't actually Pilate's home. His real home was in a place called Caesarea, which is miles away from here. But it's believed that Pilate actually came to Jerusalem every year during the Passover because he always anticipated these Jewish political uprisings to come up. But this time, he wasn't dealing with a revolt against the Roman rule, but an angry mob that demanded that he execute a nonviolent rabbi named Jesus. And Right off the bat, Pilate expects that something isn't quite right, and he's a little bit annoyed that the chief priests don't give him a straight answer when he asks, why is Jesus here? They just say he's a criminal. Pilate tries to just stop the whole thing right there, but when he realizes that they're actually demanding the death penalty for Jesus, it means that they consider Jesus a threat to Rome, and that Pilate knows that there's going to be bad consequences if he doesn't take them seriously and they turn out to be right. And so he takes Jesus inside, and he starts to try and unravel what's going on here. And what follows is a really interesting exchange between Pilate and Jesus, where Pilate is trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And is, is what he's been true, uh, told about Jesus actually true? Is he this threat to Rome? So Pilate presses in. He asks if he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus asks Pilate what he believes about him which that strikes a little bit of a nerve with Pilate. You see, how dare Jesus assume that Pilate is actually concerned about these petty Jewish disagreements? He asks Jesus again why he's here, and Jesus responds with some description of a kingdom which looks and behaves remarkably different than the kingdom of this world and what we would expect. Pilate, really just trying to figure out what in the world Jesus is talking about there, he asks Jesus to confirm that he is indeed, indeed claiming to be a king. And then he goes on to simply say, you know, that's what you're saying. And he says he's here in this world to testify to the truth. And those on the side of truth, listen to him. At this point, and I don't really blame Pilate right here, kind of annoyed and frustrated at Jesus, he just kind of scoffs. What is truth? Then he steps back outside to tell the chief priests that if Jesus really is this criminal, he's not seeing it. He says, I find no basis for a charge against him. But Pilate's a smart guy. He didn't get where he's at by, with, without being good at the, playing this politics game. And so he knows that he still needs to deal with this angry mob, so he appeals to this tradition that he has with the Jews on Passover. Pilate asks if the, if the Jewish leaders would rather him release Jesus, who is clearly innocent, or a man named Barabbas, who's on death row man who's described as someone who has taken part in an uprising. And the word used to describe Barabbas is this word, leistace. And it can be translated as robber or thief, but when it's applied to Barabbas here, it's, it's implying somebody that's an outlaw or an insurrectionist. You see, Barabbas was a violent man and a thug who's guilty of treason against Rome and he deserves to die. And Pilate is purposely giving the Jewish leaders an absolutely ridiculous choice. Free the peaceful rabbi or the murderous rebel. And the Jewish leaders say, give us Barabbas. And so Pilate gives them Barabbas. He takes Jesus to have him flogged in preparation for his execution. And the beginning verses of chapter 19, tell us how Jesus is whipped, beaten, and mockingly clothed with a crown of thorns and a dirty purple robe. Pilate then takes Jesus back out in front of the chief priest to let him know that he still thinks that he's innocent. And I think what Pilate's doing here is that he's hoping that the Jewish people would see Jesus as a bleeding and broken mess, clothed as a false king, and just realize that he's not a threat. Let the beating be enough. But when they see him, they demand his crucifixion even more. And so Pilate begins to argue with them. He says, you crucify him. He's not guilty. He's innocent. I don't see any reason for a charge against him. And the priests tell him that he must die. They shift their narrative that he's violated their law. He's claimed to be the son of God. And when he hears that, Pilate pauses. You see, when we hear that phrase son of God, we know that it's Jesus claiming to be divinity. But for Pilate, it has a whole nother context. You see, the the title son of God was a title used to refer to Caesar, to the emperor. It was all over the place. It was on some of their coins. And so Pilate thinks that maybe Jesus actually is claiming to be Caesar, that he's the The emperor, he's claiming to be a real political threat, so he brings him back inside to try and figure out, all right, what really is going on here? He asks him, where in the world do you come from? You're from Galilee, right, man? But Jesus doesn't make a sound, bleeding and exhausted. This angers Pilate, and he reminds Jesus, look, man, do you know who I am? I have the power to kill you or set you free. And at that, Jesus does pipe up tell Pilate what really is happening, that the power he has isn't really his, it's God's. And that, by the way, Pilate, you're so inconsequential that the real guilty parties are the ones who handed Jesus over. Now, Jesus' reality check, I don't think it really moves the needle at all for Pilate's understanding of who Jesus is. I think it just confirms what he's already thought about Jesus, that he's not a threat. And so he goes back out to the mob, insisting again, actually for the fifth time in this passage, that Jesus Jesus should go free, and when they hear Pilate, the chief priests again shift their approach. They remind Pilate, hey, if you really do let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. You see, this was a veiled threat. Crucify him, or there was a real possibility that the Jewish leaders would appeal to Rome that Pilate let a man who claimed to be king walk. Pilate knew this would only cause more trouble with him and possibly put his career or his life in danger, and so Pilate finally caves to political expediency. He decides that trying to free Jesus isn't worth the hassle and the headache. He sits down on the judgment seat, and in order to quell the mob, he sends Jesus to be crucified. And as I read this, it seemed like Pilate to me was kind of a tragic man in light of this account. You see, he's so entrenched with his own power and position that he's bought into the lie that everybody he rules over is completely irrelevant and beneath him. He's annoyed at this Jewish problem, even telling the chief priests again and again, deal with it yourselves, man. This isn't worth my time. A short interrogation of Jesus shows that the man is innocent, albeit strange and frustrating to Pilate. And he meets every response that Jesus gives with contempt, convinced that there's nothing in this rabbi that he needs to truly pay attention to. And while Pilate has no problem at all executing somebody, in his heart he knows something's not right, that Jesus is innocent, but yet every effort he has to free him is thwarted by the Jewish leaders until finally Pilate just rolls over. And rather than dealing rightly and justly with Jesus engaging the way that Jesus has tried to reach him, he sidesteps an honest look at the situation and justifies in his heart the root of political expediency. You know, Pilate's not the only person in this story that's so immersed in his own view of himself that he fails to engage with who Jesus is. In fact, the chief priests have also bought into the lie that their own self-importance is is so great, so much so that they're going to do everything they can to protect their power, their position, and their privilege. We see it right away when the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before Pilate. You see, the plot to kill Jesus was set into motion long before this, and they were convinced that they were gonna put this innocent man to death. Jesus had been a thorn in their side all along as he called out their hypocrisy and corruption, the way their actions seemed holy, but their hearts were far away from God, and how they were incapable of believing that God might work in a way that they didn't understand. And their main concern, even as they went before Pilate, wasn't whether or not they were doing the right thing. It was maintaining their outer religious purity so that they could lead out on the religious festivities of Passover. You see, entering the home or the business of a Gentile would have made them unclean for a week. And so they forced Pilate to move between the inside and the outside of the palace to communicate with them. And as they interact with Pilate, they keep shifting their story about what they're even accusing Jesus of. First saying that he's just a criminal that needs to be executed. Then revealing that even though Jesus hasn't actually broken any Roman law, He's committed blasphemy and claimed to be the son of God. And when it's obvious that that approach then fails, they resort to veiled threats in in an attempt to appeal to Pilate's political allegiances rather than presenting any evidence at all. They chose to put a violent criminal back on the street rather than free Jesus and constantly reject any idea that he could be called the king of the Jews. And in doing so, they make one of the most heart. Breaking declarations of allegiance that any follower of God can make, that we have no king but Caesar. And in that statement, the Jewish leaders revealed that they aren't really concerned about serving the God that they represent. Instead, they sell out to the very people that are ruling and oppressing them. What we see is that the real king in the Jewish leaders' hearts is their own power, position, their own comfort. It's the perfect image that they try to portray to the Jewish people and the respect and adoration that they get from the people that they think are so far beneath them. To them, Jesus isn't a legitimate teacher to consider. He's a threat. And Pilate and the chief priests, they both buy into this lie that they were in control as they were enslaved by their own image, their own comfort, their own position, and they arrogantly believed that they had the power to defeat, to to get rid of, to deal with Jesus. And in doing so, they choose to avoid and reject the truth of who Jesus is, and how throughout the story, he's shown himself to be this patient pursuer of our hearts, this humble, true king, this true sacrificial lamb on our behalf. You know, one of the most interesting exchanges in this passage, it happens the first time that Pilate interrogates Jesus. And I'll be honest for me, when I first read this, this was kind of confusing I'm like, what is going on here? Jesus doesn't act like somebody who's on death row and about to get executed, and it kind of seems like Jesus doesn't even understand the questions that are being asked at him. But that's because as we look at this interaction, we see that it's actually a lot more about Jesus's character in the pursuit of Pilate than any agenda that Pilate might have. As Pilate presses in, Jesus is much more concerned about his interrogator's heart than defending himself even though he knows how wicked and broken and arrogant Pilate is. And that's the point. You see, it doesn't matter where we've been, what we've done, what the motivations of our heart are. Jesus will always try to press in and reach those that are created in his image. That's why in this conversation with Pilate, Jesus sidesteps each of Pilate's questions in a way that invites Pilate to engage with Jesus on a deeper level. When Pilate asks if he's the king of the Jews, Jesus questions the questioner. He appeals to Pilate personally, asking him to consider in his heart what Pilate really thinks about Jesus. When Pilate refuses to go there and gets angry that he would be enmeshed in Jewish affairs, Jesus pivots to Pilate's political side, gives him a picture of a kingdom unlike anything that Pilate sees in this world and carries an ethic with it that goes against the grain of anything that Pilate has experienced. Pilate gets distracted and and presses in and tries to get Jesus to admit that he's this king. And Jesus gives a non-answer, not because he's not a king, but because he knows he's not the type of king that Pilate understands. And then Jesus appeals to the philosophical and intellectual side of Pilate, revealing his purpose is to make truth known, the truth of revealing who God is and what he does to the world, and inviting Pilate to press in and listen But Pilate wouldn't hear it. But, you know, Jesus doesn't stop there with Pilate. You see, even after taking this brutal beating and and, and, and bleeding and exhausted, he still pursues Pilate's heart. In John 19.11, as he stands there exhausted and beaten, Jesus humbly rebukes the arrogance and false presumptions of Pilate. And seeking to cut through Pilate's blindness and pride in the situation, He tells Pilate, look, you have no power here except that that's been given to you. And by the way, even if you do kill me, you're not the main person responsible for my death. You See, even though Pilate doesn't see it, Jesus still patiently invites him to, to look at the truth of who he is. But Pilate avoids that truth at every moment. But even still, Jesus faithfully continues to reach out to Pilate because that's who he is. You see, when we are faithless, he is faithful. His hand is always reaching out to us, no matter how much we scorn him, no matter how much we ignore him, no matter how much our own desires, our motives blind us, or what lies we're believing in that keep us from putting Jesus in the spotlight of our lives. No matter what, Jesus is still there, still pursuing us. And what's incredible is that this patient pursuer is actually the true king of the universe that deserves our worship. One of the most bitterly ironic scenes in this story is what some people call the uh, coronation of Jesus in John 19, verses one through three. This is where the soldiers take Jesus and they scourge him with, with a whip that has a bunch of different tails on it, some with bone and metal on the end of it that tear deep into Jesus's flesh. And as Jesus is lying there, Bleeding and and, and broken, the the soldiers jam this massive crown of thorns onto his forehead, and they, they throw a purple robe on his bleeding back, and then they mockingly bow down at him, calling him the king of the Jews, and then repeatedly slapping him in the face. What these soldiers don't realize is that they're actually beating and mocking the king of the universe, who actually has all of the power over that moment. The king that so loved the world that he entered into it, the word becoming flesh so that he could be lifted up on a cross and give every person a chance to find healing and hope and forgiveness in him. In a way, this whipping was just the beginning of Jesus' enthronement as Jesus is crowned, clothed, and hailed as king. It's not what we'd expect from a king, but it's what the king of the universe did so that you and I could know and love him. It's what he did to deal with our brokenness. And in doing so, he'd sacrifice himself in a way that would allow him to dwell with his people and bring us back to himself. You see, it's no mistake that this coronation took place in conjunction with the Passover festival the celebration of the redemption of Israel being brought out of Egypt, and particularly remembering how God spared the Jewish people by allowing them to sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood over their doorframes, so that God would see the sacrifice of another and allow his judgment to pass over that home. During this festival, hundreds, thousands of sacrificial lambs would be shedding their blood in place of the Jewish people. A substitute would die in their place so that they could have right relationship with God. And they all missed that this was just a shadow of the true lamb unfolding that reality right in front of them. You see, this Passover, Jesus would step forward as the real sacrificial lamb to die in our place, to take the punishment we deserve so that we could stand under his blood. And no better place is that represented than in the interaction with Barabbas and Jesus. You see, Pilate offers up to the Jewish leaders of choice, Jesus, the blameless and innocent man, or Barabbas, the murderous, rebellious man whose guilt is so obvious. And the crowd chooses Barabbas who goes free. It's a ridiculous choice, but that's the point. And by the way, any one of us could have been standing in Barabbas' place. This is why Jesus came. He came to die in our place. So that we could stand under his sacrifice, so that the punishment we deserve would pass over us and land on him. He's the true lamb, he's the humble king, he's the patient pursuer who relentlessly chases after us. And so, what does that mean for you and I today? It can be easy, like it was for me going through this, to to point out the ridiculousness of Pilate and the chief priests, to see how they operated out of all of their own false assumptions, the lies about themselves, their situations, God, and others. How Pilate bought into the lie that he was the one that had the ultimate control to manipulate the outcomes and people, and that, that led him to compromising on what he knew was right in order to please the crowd. The chief priests, they thought that they had God figured out, and in their arrogance, they believed that they really were the best of God's people, while at the same time, they were really just a slave to their own power and comfort, to live lives of comfortable hypocrisy, saying that they were serving God, while at the same time serving themselves. And you know, our brokenness and sin may be less overt and publicized. It may be a little more secret and subtle, but deep down, we're no different than Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it talks about the root sin in the hearts of Pilate, the chief priests, and us today. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. You see, each one of us in here, we're broken people. And we naturally are drawn to things that trip us up, that hurt both us and those that we love, leave us enslaved to the things of this world that we're convinced are gonna fill us. And we all also carry with us some significant pain and hurt that have actually taught us some sort of narrative about ourselves, God, others, our situations. And in an effort to alleviate those pain, it causes us to deal with life in harmful ways. It could be control issues. It could be addictions like alcohol, porn, drugs. We could just disconnect ourselves from God and others and live in this state of isolation. Maybe we struggle with anger or try any other number of ways to try and protect or defend or numb ourselves. Then we see the way that that impacts the people around us. For me, it looked like years of feeling like I needed to make others proud, that my value laid solely on what I could do for others, and that I was so unlovable and broken that if people really knew who I was, they would want nothing to do with me. So in my shame, I put on a mask in front of others, and I lived in hypocrisy and hiding. Then I secretly numb my pain with relationships and pornography and alcohol and a lot of other different things in my life. And that cycle of shame and lies ruled my life for so long. And while my story may not be yours, we all have a cycle. We're all buying into some kind of lie. And when we fall for the lies, we miss the true savior, the true king, the true lamb, the one that is patiently pursuing us. You see, the truth of who Jesus is, it shines all throughout this passage, but it also shines throughout every single day of our life. It stares us in the face, and it demands that we confront who Jesus is because Jesus forces us to face the truth. The truth of Jesus slams into us in every part of our life. He blows up our philosophical boxes. He turns our understanding of this world on its head. He presses into our political leanings, the way that we sell ourselves to these ideas and tribes that are of the kingdoms of this world. He rubs into our personal, internal, secret life and forces us to ask, what really is the truth of Jesus? And who am I serving? The question for us is, how are we going to respond? I can try to sidestep it and avoid it, believing that maybe Jesus really isn't that significant to waste my time on. I can outright reject it and refuse to believe that God actually works that way. Or I can come to accept the truth that Jesus really did come and do what the Bible says that he came and did. And the way that we respond to the truth of Jesus, that what is truth question, it forces us to examine who sits on the throne of our hearts. Who's taking Jesus' place? Is it our comfort? Is it the desire to please the crowd and say the popular thing? Is it our reputation? Maybe some secret that we've been holding on to? I know for me in this season, the thing that I'm struggling with is the people pleasing. The sense that my worth is only found in what I can give to people. Because deep down, I struggle with this belief that I'm just this failure as a husband, as a father, as a leader. What is it for you? we can choose to each day to ask God to let us help him to put him on the throne of our heart, to ask him to help us to live out the truth of who Jesus is and to, to let him do whatever it is he needs to do to make us look more like him. For some of us, that looks like taking the step to actually ask Jesus to be the savior and king of our life. And for some of us, that means that we need to remind ourselves of the promise of the gospel to touch and change every part of our life as we surrender those things to him. Whereas principle three of Celebrate Recovery says, to consciously choose to commit all our life and will to Christ's care and control. And so today, as we ponder those things, we're actually gonna remind ourselves of the truth of Jesus. The patient pursuer, the humble king, the true lamb, by remembering his sacrifice and the way he stood in our place so that we could freely walk with him. Communion is a symbolic act that we're gonna do to remind ourselves of that. And it's what followers of Jesus do to remember Jesus' death, resurrection, and the free gift of forgiveness that he has for us. And since it's intended to be something that reminds us of something we already have, it's reserved for those who have already accepted Jesus. And if you've never grabbed hold of that hope for you, today can be the day that you do. Come talk to me after service. Talk to anybody up here on this stage. We'd love to walk you through what that looks like. And this simple act of remembrance, it spells out the gift of Jesus on our behalf. You see, the bread represents Jesus' body, how it was broken for our brokenness. You see, he knows the way that we're broken. He knows and understands the hurts in our lives, the way we've hurt others, the way that we run to these other things to give us comfort or control, the lies that we're believing. And yet he was still willing to be killed in our place, not because of anything that we've ever done to be worthy, but because of his grace and love for us. You see, we really are that broken, but God really does love us that much. And the juice represents the blood that Jesus spilled, the way that he stood in our place and took the sentence we deserve so that we could be forgiven and walk free, just like Barabbas. See, this is the good news of the truth of who Jesus is, and it's what we celebrate today. So we're gonna go into a time of worship, We're going to distribute the communion elements. We ask that you hold on to them. And here in just a few moments, together, we're going to celebrate that truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us in our lives. Let's worship together.
2: So oh, precious is the
1: chasm that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into me. and through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadow of my soul the work is finished the end is written
0: jesus christ my living would you stand with us sing these words who could imagine
1: who could imagine so great a mercy? What a heart could fathom such boundless grace. The God of ages, step down from glory to where my sin and bear my shame. Cross The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me His. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living. Grip on me, you have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living. salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living hope Then came the morning that sealed the promise Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Sing that again. Then came the morning that sealed the
0: kings clamoring for power, all other kings aiming to be served, yet on the night that Jesus was betrayed, this night that we studied this morning, he took bread, he gave it to them, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, when you eat of it, remember me, so church, let's take and remember his body broken for us. Echoes of Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, the forgiveness of sin. He said, take, take this cup. This cup is my blood poured out. It's the blood of the new covenant poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, remember me. So, church, let's take a drink. Jesus, there's no one like you. Came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many, including us. We thank you that the innocent one, you took our place in our guilt, that we might be set free and walk in the newness of life in you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done for us. And we wanna live in light of it with you as the king of our hearts and go and do likewise. We give our lives up in service to others. You're our king. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, as you head out, just a couple of things. Brian, with the Nosu Translation, they're gonna be leaving out in about a week. He's gonna be at this booth on the right, and he'd love to chat with any of you guys. Uh, I know we were having a uh, learning a lot just talking to him backstage, and uh, the CR team will be out there at that booth as well. If you need prayer through these doors, we would love to pray with you. Fellowship, faithful, love you. Have a great week.